Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Today's episode is a beautiful conversation that I had with Erin Tack Shipley, and we had this conversation earlier today, and I decided that I would sit down to record this intro and just carry forward the momentum of the beauty of this conversation um, and record this intro while the conversation was still very fresh. We spoke about some key shifts in thinking that have occurred for Erin along the path of activism and anti-oppression work and its intersection with wellness. So this question of personal wellness, right? Collective wellness um, and the intersection of the two. Erin is a good friend and also an astrologer. And I feel like this conversation, um, I had some moments of feeling chills, you know, feeling these ideas just really land in my body. Um, I really felt like a gratitude and an appreciation for the ways that these ideas um, are coming through a lot of thoughtfulness, reflectiveness, and being with these ideas, working with them, um, working with what I hear Aaron say as staying with the trouble I felt a lot of peace, depth, honesty, and humility emanating from this conversation. You're in for a thought-provoking episode drawing together some insights on how belonging and relationship, being in relationship with all things, um, are each medicine for the alienation and separation that is really embedded into various cultural myths that we've been born into. A little bit about Erin. Erin Tack Shipley is a liberation-centered astrologer. She works to help you see yourself clearly and affirm your purpose without burning out or abusing wellness tools. For over three years, Erin has provided astrological guidance to socially conscious individuals through one-on-one counseling, written content, and live workshops. Over the last decade, she has worked as an advocate, educator, and capacity builder within multiple intersectional feminist organizations, learning firsthand the challenges that pervade social justice environments. Erin writes about the intersection of wellness and justice because she understands how vital the relationship between them is for liberation and how often that relationship turns toxic. Most of her clients are badass activists navigating burnout or compassionate healers who are seeking to be more mindful of their capacity to do harm. Erin believes that people who work in justice should have solid support and that wellness leaders should conduct their work with conscious integrity. She understands that being well and being free are inherently linked, and we need both to belong and affect change for a better world. Erin lives and works on unceded and unoccupied native Popoluchum Ama Mutsin, Awaswas, and Ohlone land, also known as Santa Cruz, California. Her work is deeply influenced by her peers and colleagues, as well as living healers, educators, and activists such as Bio Akamalafe, Adrian Marie Brown, Erin Wise, Rachel Rice, Toy Smith, Carmen Spaniola, Jen Lemon, Joanna Macy, Donna Haraway, and Lele Maparion. And a few announcements before we get started. 
In January 2021, I am teaching two courses. One is my Evolutionary Astrology Intensive that is a live course that has pre-recorded modules you can watch at your own time and live sessions weekly in the group. This course is designed to give you the foundations of a practice in evolutionary astrology. Evolutionary astrology is a modern, psychological, soulful, and karmic astrology that focuses on Pluto and the lunar nodes as a way to determine a soul's desire for being here, what a soul has brought into this life from the past, and where a soul is headed in this life. I have been in love with this form of astrology since 2012, when it helped me find a connection to the deepest part of myself, you know, my soul, the part of me who has been here before and will incarnate again. Um, I was assisted in finding this part of myself in the midst of profound crisis during this incarnation. And I have since found that not only is this branch of astrology amazing for understanding natal charts and people, but this form of astrology is full of wisdom teachings that open up greater spiritual connectivity. This course is an opportunity to learn astrology in a structured and guided way. And also as a teacher, I really aim to help people feel the material and connect with their own capacity to form interpretations and develop what is called an archetypal eye. So you can see the archetypes everywhere. This class has glowing reviews from previous students, and you can find these testimonials on the course page. I'm leaving the course page in the show notes. So visit, learn more about this course and enroll there. You know, I love this course for being a guide into a deeper relationship with astrology, and it's also an amazing community experience. It always attracts a really interesting, intelligent, and thoughtful group of people. So if you enjoy the content shared here on the podcast or on the forecast, that's kind of like a signal of resonance. Um, so it's always this really beautiful group that um, emerges in these classes and I would love to have you. I'm also teaching a level two training open to alumni of the evolutionary astrology intensive called meteorite that will also begin in January, 2021. This group is about developing quality astrology and building intimacy with the practice in a group of other committed journeyers. Because evolutionary astrology is such a soulful practice, we will bring a lot of enchantment and imagination into this space in addition to building our interpretive acumen. So becoming more skilled as astrologers, but also more imaginative. This group is here for the cultivation of unique and embodied astrologers. There will be two main ways we accomplish this that can be summed up as rooting down and branching out. Rooting down will continue anchoring into the depth of the evolutionary astrology material by working with new curriculum, volunteer clients, as well as by discussing group members' charts together and keeping our own introspective processes alive relative to our birth chart transits and psyches and souls. Branching out, participants will also embark on a culminating project as part of building and generating their own astrological body of work. You know, this was important to me because the groups that form for classes I teach are always so amazing. And I wanted to create some space for people to share their creations at the end of class. And having um, been in amazing grad school classes around creative writing and getting to create in a group of people. The synergy is just amazing. And I'm really excited to facilitate that. 
We'll explore astrology as a study as well as a way of life. We're going to go all in devoting ourselves to the practice of astrology and the embodiment of being in lucid relationship with the cosmos and being able to communicate our interpretations. The course page for Meteorite is also in the notes. Welcome, Erin. I'm really excited to have you here. Thanks. It's really good to be here. So I'm seeing you over Zoom right now and you look radiant and there's these beautiful plants behind you. Um, and we just got to catch up, which was really nice. Um, and I want to start out by asking you, like, we'll just dive right in, um, how your activism and anti-oppression work started and how you connect that with astrology today. Yeah, wow. Thanks for that question. Um, it's funny, I am thinking a lot about this, like, sensitizing event <laughs> of, like, how things start. Um, and I would say that it, I don't know if there was one, it feels like pretty emergent. Um, and I think at the root, there's a, there's actually a lot of harm. Um, I grew up in a family and in a culture where there was a lot of addiction. And I think one of the things, at least that I've seen in my experience is that addiction tends to go hand in hand with denial. Um, and because there was so much denial of the harm that was being done to individuals by themselves or, or like the side effects of those harms, um, on other people close to them and close to me, um, there was like the denial sort of permitted the addiction to perpetuate itself. Um, and I think that was, you know, that, that was the two thirds of my life, like living in that denial. And I, and I think that it, it really saved me in a lot of ways, um, to kind of sugarcoat my experience. It helped me cope. And somewhere around like, I don't know, eight years ago, it was when Uranus was going through my fourth house of home and family and ancestors. Um, that I did a lot of work sort of radicalizing myself to, you know, awaken to the, the pain and the trauma that I experienced, uh, both culturally and familially. And, um, I think that once I had started to see harm, like once I gave myself the capacity to see harm and abuse, um, it was like, I couldn't stop seeing it. And I spent a long time in 12 step programs, um, which I don't, I don't spend a ton of time there anymore. Um, and I like support people who do and people who have chosen that, that that's not the right thing for them. Uh, it saved my life in many ways. And I, I had developed an eating disorder in order to cope with some of the other things that were happening. Um, and I found that, I couldn't heal the eating disorder until I looked at the harm that the eating disorder was a symptom of. And until I saw it as a symptom, I couldn't like stop harmful, my harmful relationship with food. And that was really revelatory. 
um, to, to just see that like the harm that I was doing to myself was actually a symptom or a coping mechanism for a larger trauma. Um, and so when I got to that place, um, where I was able to like, look at some of the things that were happening in my family, I, I think there was like something, it's like set me on this course where I couldn't stop. So I like, quote unquote, figure it out, <laughs> figure it out. is like not a thing, but, um, like I figured out what was wrong there and I set to work healing it. And then I started to realize that we were living in like a culture of denial. Um, and it was way bigger than my family. Um, and it was way bigger than the town that I was living in, uh, where I definitely experienced some, I'm Jewish and I experienced some anti-Semitism growing up. Um, and that was really hard. I lost friends over it. Um, and there was racism where I grew up too. And I was really sheltered from it. I had no idea. Um, I grew up in like a pretty like whitewashed, uh, neighborhood school. Um, and I think, you know, in my early to mid twenties, I stopped accepting denial as a coping mechanism. And I think once I started to see the harms that were pervasive in the world, I wanted to set about to change them or to fix them in some way. Um, and in line with like that moment in my life where I was like healing from this eating disorder and like acknowledging addiction um, that was like pervasive, not just in my family and like plenty of friends and housemates and like so many people that I knew, including myself. Um, I also had found astrology in the tarot um, and the astrological term for, for the moment that I was in in my life is Sade Sati, which is Saturn transiting the moon. Um, and I have my moon in my 12th house. Um, and so I was like dealing with like being responsible and accountable to all of the like suffering that was happening around me. Um, and how that impacted me somatically and emotionally and physically. Um, and I had to find like a system to, or a structure to hold that Saturn. Um, and so I found astrology, um, and I found, um, I also was working with the tarot a lot at that time. And I still work with the tarot, but I would consider astrology my main practice. Um, but ultimately I think that like activism and anti-oppression work seek to, and astrology or wellness kind of seek to do the same thing. Um, and activism, like the, the definition of an activist from my understanding is like somebody, somebody who observes the harmful realities of the world and then tries to change those realities <laughs> and wellness, um, is like a, a sort of culture of healing. Right. Um, and you can't heal something that isn't like, that doesn't need to be healed. Like there has to be a wound. So if, if you're seeking to heal a wound, you're kind of seeking to do the same thing that an activist might do. Um, and the way that those two things might be navigated may be different. And, and I would argue that they're unique to everyone. Wow, Erin. Um, so this was giving me like 
an image somehow of like um, the self as kind of like a circle, the family, another circle around it, the community, another circle, and just kind of expanding out and having this awakening experience of realizing that your experience wasn't just personal or familial, but that it had this much broader context. Yeah. Yeah. I would say like, I think that most, I was listening to a podcast the other day and one of the things that the person being interviewed was saying was that like anybody who is inflicting harm on someone else has been harmed. Um, because inflicting harm, like you kind of have to know what that is in order to, in order to do it. Like you have to have an example. Um, and, and that's hard to look at. That's like painful to look at. Um, but I think that when we live in a culture of supremacy and, you know, patriarchy and exploitation, capitalism, racism, classism, ableism, um, it's really easy to have to like, once you start to look to see harms, not just on a collective level, but also on a personal level. And you can start to see the interlocking relationships between them. Yeah. Um, I like that you brought in the context of the Sati Sati too. And just, um, you know, for, for those who are familiar with it, um, there's kind of an instant like evocation of like, okay, we know, but it's kind of, um, you know, the 12th house being a place of, um, hidden things or away from the world and Saturn being like the work that, you know, we're called to do at certain points so that you had this call from within this like moral call to look at things that are challenging and sometimes easier to escape from say Mm. through like addiction or denial, as you were mentioning. Yeah. It's interesting that you like return to Saturn too, because Saturn has its joy in the 12th house. Um, and I think a lot about like prisons and incarceration, uh, when I, and like cages, when I think about the 12th house, you know, like our suffering as a cage or mania as a cage. And, um, I think if, if I tie that back to like the original or one of the more traditional interpretations of Saturn as like a God of irrigation, of systems, of channels. Um, It's sort of like trying to find your way through the labyrinth of the 12th house, um, which is like less, like the cage is actually not so simple. It's not just a box. It's like a maze. And so I think that's where I start to see how, that's where I start to see all of the layers and intersections between all of the like cultural issues and the collective issues and the personal issues. That hit, I was getting like tingly sensations in my head and crown. Um, so you've done a lot of work around this intersection of activism and wellness. And what do you think the connection between these two things is ideally? Um, and then also like, what would you hope to see change in the wellness world? Mm-hmm. I think that, um, I did some notes on, I wrote a little bit about this, uh, recently. And I think ultimately the connection between activism and wellness in my ideal world is a universal recognition that the quality of our own wellness is inherently linked to the quality of our relationships. And 
when we understand that we're in relationship to everything, not just other people, not just the culture, not just our pets or critters or, you know, um, also the earth, the cosmos, like we're in relationship to everything. And so when we understand that, we can understand that our wellness is dependent on collective wellness, not individual wellness. And we can't be well at the expense of someone else's suffering because if someone else is suffering so that we can quote unquote be well, then wellness isn't actually happening because we're in relationship to whoever it is that is suffering um, or whatever it is that is suffering. And um, so I guess when I'm thinking about the, what I would hope to see change in the wellness world, um, I would hope that we do more individual and collective withnessing as one of my teachers, Viola Komalafe says, um, withness rather than witness, um, which I think they're, they're inherently, you know, they're very similar, like to witness, um, is to see something. Um, but to witness is to be with. And I think that a lot of the, again, coming back to this understanding that like, I was really sheltered. I was also in denial for so, for such a long period of my, in my life. Um, I was in denial of racism and classism and, um, supremacy, white supremacy and patriarchy and all of these things. Um, and that was not like, that was a culture of denial. And so the shift um, that's ideal in order to sort of work our way through the maze, if you will, um, is to not, is to like shift out of denial and into witnessing. Um, and with witnessing, I think become, comes like community care and belonging and, um, the ability to sacrifice with like sacrifice our comfort with the knowing that like the sacrifices that we make are contributing to someone else's security and contributing to collective security contributes to our individual wellness, um, as well as our collective wellness. So, um, I think one of the things that I've struggled with the most or that I struggled with when I was sort of beginning to connect anti-oppression work with wellness um, was that I was seeing like mostly white ladies um, in the wellness world who were yoga instructors or Akashic records readers or astrologers or tarot readers or like people coming into these practices um, and doing a lot of spiritual bypassing. Um, and the spiritual bypassing wasn't, um, it wasn't that they weren't acknowledging their trauma or weren't being with their pain, but there was maybe an unwillingness to speak to collective issues. Um, and I think that that per, like contributes to the culture of denial. And so I think that when you start to look at the tools that we've been using, like those tools, like astrology and tarot and yoga and, um, 
I, I know that there's like so many more, like, you know, things that like healers have been doing for eternity, herbalism, um, midwifery, like the, all, all of these practices have a lineage. Um, and if you look far enough back, the practices probably emerged from a need to repair rupture, need to repair harm. Um, and so when we can acknowledge that all of these tools are tools and they're not like astrology is not a tool for astrology. Like it's not the tool for the tool's sake. Astrology is meant to do something right. It has a purpose. Um, it can like, it's fascinating. Don't get me wrong. Like I could spend my entire life just exploring astrology, but I'm, I'm much more interested in how it can support, um, reframes, how it can like refine understanding, how it can validate experiences, um, including like the affirmation of trauma and harm. So that denial doesn't get to, um, hold its sort of, uh, place of priority, uh, in, in our individual, like ways of navigating the world. Um, so I think that like, ideally I would really like to see people who have systemic privilege and, and emphasis on systemic privilege, because I think there are, there are privileges, um, that come with not having systemic privilege, uh, and, but systemic privilege is, is one of the things that I think continues to cause harm. Um, so I would hope that people with systemic privilege being like skin privilege, like light skin or white skin privilege, um, gender privilege, um, being either of, uh, the gender given at birth or, um, male privilege, if you will. Um, straight privilege, class privilege. There's so many different ableist privilege, um, ability privilege that they would speak to a collective, uh, without like erasing people who don't have those privileges, um, and, and seek to be more inclusive. And I think in order to speak to those things, you have to know what they are. So you have to kind of do the seeking and the educating and the listening and the witnessing to get there. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a collective wave probably coming from a lot of this activism um, to acknowledge the experience of people um, who have different experiences yeah. instead of uh, denying it or trying to explain it from one's vantage point. And it's a tricky line too, because so much cultural appropriation can happen when we start to speak to it. Um, I know that I've, I've done, I've perpetuated appropriation, um, and harm unknowingly when I started to speak to this stuff, because I was like, I was so angry at the world. <laughs> I was, and I still am, I'm still filled with rage sometimes at just how much harm I see. But I think that, um, you know, I, I would like us to slow down. Um, like I think about, I think about crystals a lot and like white ladies and I'm a white lady. So like, I feel like I can speak to white ladies as a white lady. 
um, white ladies with crystals who are like collecting crystals in order to heal themselves, um, totally unaware or in denial about how painful the mining industry is. Um, that is taking crystals from the earth, both in, in like the labor, um, of the people who are doing the mining, which is probably extractive and exploitative and not knowing the effects of like pulling so much from the earth without asking, um, without asking the earth and, um, taking more than maybe is, you know, because it's become an industry taking more than is appropriate. Um, and like, I have crystals, like I didn't, I didn't know this before. Um, and then looking at like the technology industry, which is maybe more harmful than that, you know, the, the, the minerals, I think there's like diamonds in our laptops or something. And that's like, like, we're so unaware of how complicit we are. Um, and so I think like, for me, a lot of it just starts with raising awareness. Um, along these lines, could you speak to some critical shifts in perception that you've had or in thinking um, that have occurred for you along this path, um, perhaps from some conditioned social norms or things that we just inherently accept, like crystals, um, to some more carefully considered ethics? And um, I know you think about these kind of things too, like what kinds of cultural mythos are we born into in the West or in the U S specifically that you've come to deconstruct? This is such a great question. Um, I feel like I've had like so many shifts. I feel like I'm having a shift every week, every day. I don't know a lot. <laughs> um, I think one of the first ones was the um, coming into an understanding of the truth as medicine. I used to think that um, telling someone the truth about like, say, say somebody said something to me and it, and it hurt. Um, I used to think that telling them that it hurt was wrong <laughs> because like, you don't do that to people. You don't tell people that they did something hurtful. And again, that perpetuates denial. Right. And that, and that also means that I'm being dishonest. Um, and I think one of, I think I needed to understand truth as medicine, um, both in my capacity to tell the truth to someone else, um, and, and to speak the truth that maybe nobody wants to say, um, or to hear as well as the ability for me to to hear the truth from someone else. Um, and one of the truths that I've heard a lot from friends over the years, to be quite honest, is like, Aaron, you're too angry. <laughs> like you're so angry and it's not helpful. Um, and I think in some ways, maybe it was uh, because I was like, I was like so angry and like, like a trailblazer of truth. Um, but like, I was like a wildfire and, and I don't know, I don't know if it actually, um, I think that when we're spreading our anger, like a wildfire, it can just create more anger and just creates more harm. And I think there's a way to tell the truth with like kindness and compassion. Um, 
and I think a lot of this ties in with cancel culture, right? Like, um, cancel culture is really about, um, like we like to think that cancel culture is boycotting for the sake of supporting the underdog, so to speak, um, or canceling someone in support of whoever's been harmed. But if you look back to a lot of indigenous ideologies, and I'm not just talking about the people indigenous to Turtle Island. Um, I'm talking about like, if you go back and in like far enough in most cultures, community is, and belonging is like one of the most important things. And making the shift from like anger and rage and punishment, like punishment and guilt um, to how do we support people who are like coming into the realization that they have been perpetrators of harm? Like, how do we actually heal those people? How do we help them? How do we surround them with love? Like if you go far enough back, like certain, certain indigenous ideology in certain indigenous ideologies, people in the community would like surround the person who had done harm and tell them that they loved them. Um, and that's like, not what we want to, it's not what we want to, it's so much easier to scream at someone who's done harm. And, and like, I want to take a minute for like, you know, people who have been victims of sexual assault or people who have experienced such like severe racism. Cause it, it's, it's really hard to think about showering somebody who has like inflict who's inflicted that kind of trauma with love. It's, it's really hard to consider that. And, and I think one of the things that's really important to recognize is that the people who have, who are still feeling the effects of that kind of harm don't have to be the ones who do the healing for the people that harmed them. And when you think about it in that way, the, the critical shift is the shift is one from individualism into like collective care. So like, I don't get to carry the weight of all of these issues on my shoulders and bear that weight alone because a, that's like pretty selfish and self-centered. Um, B it's impossible. Um, and C it doesn't actually contribute to what we're trying to do. Um, like what we're trying to do is heal the bonds um, and heal the relationships between generations, um, between people, um, between communities, between ourselves and like animals and critters and the earth, um, and, and our thinking, like all of the, all of those links, all of those connections, um, are part of what we're 
trying to heal. Um, and if we like, if we place the onus on the individual, if we like, if we sit in this idea of like original sin, like, I don't want anybody to be perfect. I don't want anybody to, um, I don't, I don't want people to get their language right when they don't know. I don't want people to try to learn what it like how to heal their white fragility in one day. I don't think you can do that. Um, I don't think that like, I think so much of the critical shifts that I've experienced are like the shift into slowing down and the shift into belonging. Um, like the shift from this idea that like, Okay. So cultural mythos in the West, right? You asked about mythos. Like one of the myths, the myths that we've been sold is like faster is better. Um, like Amazon prime gets your stuff to your door in one day without acknowledging the like carbon footprint that that creates. Right. Um, and like this idea of like the quick fix or the speed of production, um, rapid response to emergencies, emergency and emergent share the same route. Um, which means that an emergency is like, like I think of like a flower blooming, right? Like, like sort of blossoming. And if you, if you stop it halfway through its bloom, you don't get to see what else is coming up. Right. Um, there, there are more like sometimes the solution arises if you just like sit and listen and watch and witness. Um, and I'm not like arguing for inaction at all. Like, I, I think, I think, you know, calling representatives and phone banking and going to the protest and, um, talking to your families <laughs> is like all really important work. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, um, that you're like here to do. I think like, I think that work is really important. Um, but I think that there's also like, I think there's this emphasis on rapidity and on speed that is like really so harmful because it puts us in a state of anxiety, like trying to fix the issue, um, rather than like listening to what needs to come up. Um, I did this really beautiful practice with, um, with Ari Felix recently. Um, has Ari been featured on the podcast? No, but that would be great. Someday. Yeah. <laughs> Soon. Yeah. Ari's, Ari's another astrologer and, um, healer and they, and I were, we, we did this practice where we blindfolded ourselves and we listened to the planets, um, just speak to us. And that was like a totally different way of engaging with astrology and so many. Wait, like, how did you listen to the planets? We, we just like closed our eyes and blindfolded ourselves and like sat on the phone for a couple of hours and like named a planet and then listened for what it had to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's it was awesome. like, it was like so emergent. It was so amazing to, to think like rather than reading a chart and being like and going by the book and going by the rules and the traditions. And I mean, I'm super about how astrology works. I think it's really important to understand like the fundamentals and, 
and where like the geometric substructures that it is based upon. Um, and at the same time, it was, it was really, inter- it was really amazing to sit down. Um, actually I laid down, <laughs> I like laid in my bed. Um, and commune with the notion that I don't know. And that maybe there's something else that wants to like show me the way. I love that with planets and kind of like channeling from the cosmos. Yeah. And I think that there's like, I think, you know, that's a tool, right? That's a tool in healing that um, in many ways might you know, might have roots in very different, in many different lineages. And I think it's also probably part of the collective conscious or unconscious, um, that we thought to do that, uh, or that already thought to do that, um, want to shout them out. But, um, yeah, I think like sl- slowing down, um, like the urgency of slowing down, is really important because when we think of like urgency, I usually think of speed culturally. Um, but urgent means like vitally important. I think it's really important that we slow down. Um, other collective mythos. Um, I think specialness is a really big one. Um, like, especially in the U S like we're, parents talking about how special their kids are and talking about how important it is that their kids have everything. Um, like in every opportunity and like we're sold this mission, right. Of the American dream. And that like, we are the chosen ones, um, and that we want everything for our children. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have children, but I can speak to what I want for future generations. And what I want for future generations is, and for the, ch- the children of this generation is security rather than comfort, um, belonging, uh, humility, um, a relationship to death that isn't filled with fear, um, but rather is guided by ritual and tradition and culture. Um, yeah, community care. Uh, and I think like we have de-emphasized the importance of that. Um, and I think when we center, when we center belonging as opposed to rage, um, and like rage totally has a place. Uh, I think it totally has a place, but I've had to come into a lot of humility around how harmful my rage has been. And that's like, yeah, I feel, I feel a lot of grief around that. Um, The last critical shift that I would say that's like really connected to that is, is somatics. Um, I've been doing work with a somatic therapist for the last six months or so, um, shifting from like a disorganized attachment style, which comes from like, um, it comes from trauma. Um, and it comes from being like in, like really in the middle of collapse. I, I 
was forced to move out of my home in Oakland, uh, native Ohlone land, um, and couldn't find housing in the Bay area that was affordable. And I moved South to Santa Cruz, um, native Popolichum land and pretty much immediately after that evacuated a wildfire. Um, and then came, went back to Oakland and then back to Santa Cruz and was just in like so much anxiety and insecurity in that time and fear. Um, and it was, it felt a lot like experiences that I had as a kid, um, or even like in the throes of my eating disorder. And I, it took me a long time to realize that warmth was a trigger for me. Um, and I'll just say this for anyone listening who has the same experience. But when I first started working with my therapist, I, we would like invite somebody who was warm and loving, like in, in a trance state, like into the space with us. Um, and it would take me like five seconds like I would receive like maybe five seconds or even half a second in the beginning of warmth from that person in this trance state before my brain started to do the, but they don't really feel that way or, but no, like that, I can't trust that. Like I couldn't trust love. I couldn't trust warmth. I couldn't trust kindness. Like that was a trigger, um, which is often a, um, a product of abuse. Um, of experiencing abuse. And, and I think that like literally anyone listening could be quote unquote, a victim of abuse because we live in an, in an abusive culture. So I just want to name that, like, you don't have to have a sensitizing event or a person in your life or, um, any sort of identity in order to feel the, uh, the effects of abuse. Like we, we live in an abusive culture. Um, and everybody's experience will be unique, but I ran away from warmth because I couldn't trust it because I grew up in a culture of denial. So I think there's like, there's nothing worse than like in an astrology reading, for example, there's nothing worse than like, I seek to bring hope to people that I'm working with in astrology. And there's nothing worse than having some, than someone feeling like they can't touch into that sliver of hope or that sliver of warmth or affirmation because they can't trust the person's affirmation or hope or guidance or wisdom because that person hasn't acknowledged their pain or their trauma. And if that person doesn't, if, if the person giving the healing if the astro, if I, as an astrologer can't witness somebody's pain, then I'm ill-equipped to offer them warmth. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. And that comes from my own experience of feeling like without the, the validation or, or somebody like seeing me, I couldn't, tap, I couldn't tap into like safety. Um, that was so, that was like just worlds beyond what was possible for me. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have more to add, but I think that was, 
that was like a really big shift um, of like recognizing that I was literally afraid of, of goodness, of wellness. Um, and a lot of that came from like being angry at white ladies in the wellness world, denying the, the effects of, um, yeah, effects of all of the isms. I heard in 12 steps a long time ago that ism is an acronym for in search of misery. So like racism, classism, ableism, like all the isms in search of misery. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, I think I'm today I'm in search of belonging. Um, this was all really beautiful, Erin. Um, it's really clear that you've like let the things that you think about and interact with like work through you, which I think is like a form of connection and intimacy when it comes to like the search of knowledge. We could be um, these kind of sterile scientists who seek to be separate from that which we seek to understand. Um, or we can have it move through us and feel the emotions of it and have the transformations and have the confrontations and go through all the stuff, which I feel like is actually really key to wellness. Um, when it comes to like a, a personal layer, um, I think there's a moment through a lot of different healing experiences where we might come to understand that we have to do something painful in order to, be healthy person like um yeah like <laughs> the image that's coming to mind is like a little bit like intense but just thinking of like uh having something like lodged in like your skin somewhere like that accidentally got there and it's like it's gonna hurt to take it out but you have to mm -hmm. and so similar to like <laughs> um if you're on this path of seeking, you know, to live your best life or whatever, like you have some stuff underneath the surface that is influencing your capacity to live this life that you seek. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's at least an acceptance that people have on the personal level. And that is a layer, like not everyone has that, you know, like, I think that there is a way of not wanting to go to those places and to be in denial about them. But at least often there is that sense of, okay, let me take personal accountability for my shadow and my own personal trauma. Mm -hmm. And then there's this bigger layer of being like a community member or being part of the world um, and recognizing the necessity to work with collective issues. So I'm just curious, like, if you can say more about the resistance that people have to that um, and maybe some insights you have about working with that resistance, like what enables us to work with more difficult collective issues. Um, I think it's also complex, you know, based on one's positionality of like what systemic privileges they have or don't. Um, and if there's anything that needs to be let go of, um, in order to mm. engage in that. Mm. Oh, it's such a vast question. Um, I think 
I think a lot of, I think recognizing that a lot of resistance is like culturally conditioned is really important for removing some of the faulting and blaming and guilt that comes along with this work. Um, like we're conditioned to not look, <laughs> we're conditioned to sit in our comfort and to not do anything about what's happening. Um, that's what the system wants. That's like how, that's how it succeeds. It thrives on our, like the excess of personal comfort. It thrives on excess uh, and on this idea that like excess is the goal. Um, that like having a lot of money having is the goal as opposed to belonging or being in relationship. Um, it's a lot harder to be in relationship than it is to have or own or like, or have a relationship of ownership or possession. Um, and I also think that it's more rewarding to be in relationship. Um, and that I think like, knowing that, um, is really helpful. And one thing that really helps me with resistance is curiosity. Um, like asking myself why I'm resistant or what I'm resistant to. Cause, cause half the time when I'm resistant, I don't actually know what I'm resistant to. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not able to look at that. Um, and I think that asking myself, is it possible? Not like, can I do this? But like, is it, is it possible that I could look at this? Or is it possible that I sit with this for five minutes? Is it possible that I might not be perfect? Is it possible that that's okay? Um, is it possible that... I might be perpetuating harm. Um, is it possible that that doesn't mean I'm a bad person? Um, when I like dip into the pool of possibility, a lot of the work becomes less scary. Um, is it possible that I might learn something? Is it possible that I might actually like it? Uh, I think that was, that was a big one for me is like, thought it would be super painful. Turns out I really love anti-oppression work. <laughs> Turns out I'm like one of those people that is maybe not. And I talk about this with some of my friends a lot. Like I'm not, I'm not always the person that people want at the party <laughs> because I'm like talking about deep shit, um, and like painful triggers, um, like all at once like maybe having the most interesting and the most um, yucky conversation <laughs> um, at the party that <laughs> like people like don't want to, they, they don't want to engage, but they also want to know what's going on. They sort of want to be in the know. And, and I don't like, I don't like the idea that um, of performative trauma or, or trauma as a performance. I don't know that that's helpful. Um, but I do think that it makes sense to like being a part of healing. Like if it feels good to be a part of that, it feels good to be a part of repair. Um, and so like 
needing to be engaged. Like I need to be aware of the rupture in order to engage with repair. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't prioritize repair. Um, like, like I want to prioritize wellness, um, because that's actually where, like, you talk about this a lot of like what you focus on grows. And if you're focusing on the problem and the rage, then you're going to grow the problem. Um, and I think there's a way to acknowledge the problem without growing it. Um, and I think, I think a little bit about Jupiter with that too, you know, like Jupiter can look at something from far enough of a distance to be able to like, see it, um, and speak to it with a refined wisdom without becoming entangled in it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, like like Jupiter's pretty zoomed out and can sometimes be insensitive. Um, but Jupiter's also like trying to grow joy. Like Jupiter is pretty inherently buoyant. Um, and I like bless my Sag moon for that because I think it helps <laughs> me like stay with the trouble without being like, you know, it gives me a little bit of like float time um, on top of the surface so that I'm not like stuck in the depths. Um, I actually, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I was on the phone with my brother a few days ago and he was like, he knows some things about like the planets in a non-astrological, like an astronomical way. He's like, do you want to know? And I was like, sure. But he told me that Jupiter, you know, is this gas planet. And he said that if you were completely protected, like you had some kind of suit that protected you from the immense pressure of the gravity and you were like on the surface, that Jupiter would absorb you to a point, kind of like if you were inside of like pudding or something, but then at some point there would be an equalizer where you're just kind of floating like you. Oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> that's so good. I love that. Oh, the, the, what's, what's the idiom like? Something's in the pudding. The it's not the truth is in the pudding, is it? That's I think kind of familiar. I think, I think there's alliteration though. I don't know what it is. Um, maybe somebody the can. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's really funny. Yeah. Um, the um, yeah, the evidence. Um, and and that's interesting too when we're thinking about complicity. Um, cause like we're all complicit, uh, especially in the global North, I think we're like really complicit in oppression, uh, just because of the, there's no way to not participate. And also like when I realize that I'm not the only one, um, that is complicit, uh, I don't have to hate myself for it because I'm not going to hate other people for their complicity. Um, I've tried, it doesn't work. Um, I think I spent a lot, a long time, like hating white ladies, um, which was really like a projection of my own self hate from, um, from like looking at the lineage that I benefit from, um, looking at the privileges that I benefit from without acknowledging some of the ways that I don't benefit, 
um, as a woman, as a queer person, as somebody who's living with like a chronic injury, um, like a invisible um, injury too, uh, and other ways. Uh, and I think that like, um, you had asked something about like specifically, like how people can be prepared to like become more aware of how they impact. I think a a lot of, for me, what helped me or what prepared me was surrounding myself with other people like me. Um, when I started to get deeper into this work, I was, I was, I had just moved to California. I couldn't afford to, I didn't have enough clients to be a full-time astrologer. Um, and I didn't want to sell my soul. So I started working part-time for a women's rights organization. Um, and I was surrounded by other people who were like me, who cared about this stuff, who were like, in a lot of ways, um, overworking themselves. Um, and they were underpaid because in the social justice world, those harms get perpetuated everywhere. Um, but I didn't have to like witness trauma alone. Um, and I also had the like huge privilege of living with a woman. Her name is Heather Briggs. Uh, she became like a very close, friend and mentor. Um, she's a home birth midwife and a, um, herbalist and a somatic therapist and has been like doing the work of radicalizing herself for God knows how many years. And when I started to get really interested, she lent me her bookshelf and she engaged me in conversation and she held space while I like worked things out. And so I think Um, and she talked to me like about these issues, um, and to be able to have another white lady to talk to who was doing the work was like unimaginably healing, um, to, to have an example of somebody who hadn't like totally crashed, um, but also, you know, experienced the effects of, of doing anti-oppression work, um, and to just not be alone in it. And I was like really new and really fragile at the time. And so when I think about working with other people who are maybe not as deep into this work as I am now, I can have a lot more compassion because somebody had compassion with me. Um, and if, if there's anything that I would recommend to people who, who want to be more prepared or who, want to dive deeper is like find somebody else who like has what you want and ask them how to get there. Um, ask them for support, ask them questions, don't sit in it alone. And there's groups for that too. You know, um, I had joined in the Bay area, there's a group called white noise collective. Um, and they're a group that has a dial a monthly dialogue that gets together to talk about the intersection of race and gender. Um, and they have like a topic every month and they publish their notes to the, for the topic to their website. So they're like really transparent about what's happening. Um, that was a really great space to hash, hash things out with and like so many gems emerging in those conversations. 
Um, I think, yeah, I think I would say like, just don't do it alone. That goes along with the, um, shift in perception from individualism to community care. So it's like living into the, um, that shift. Yeah. Yeah. Erin, this has been so illuminating and beautiful and peaceful. (laughs) Um, I'm really appreciative of you and appreciative of these um, insights. And you're an amazing astrologer too. And I know you connect these things a lot and have a, a really deep empathy and a skill for space holding. So if people want to connect with you, um, find your work, how can they do that? Thank you. Um, you're a pretty skilled astrologer too. I am everywhere at E.T. Shipley. E.T. like extraterrestrial. Shipley is ship like a boat. L-E-Y. Um, S-H-I-P-L-E-Y. Uh, and I'm, uh, my website is etshipley.com. Uh, and people can find me on there. Um, you can book needle chart sessions. I also still do tarot. Um, everything's via zoom. And if people are not ready to make that investment, um, I just recently released a guidebook, um, called astrology 101. And it basically walks you through the fundamentals of understanding like the the most critical parts of your natal chart from a traditional astrology perspective. Um, and that's offered as a sliding scale on my site and people can kind of get a sense of how I work based on that, um, has descriptions of all the planets and signs. I'm really excited about it. It's a really cool tool. I spend a lot of time on the graphics. So awesome. um, I'll definitely link that in the notes. Um, I guess to, close it out um just if there's anything that feels like really alive for you currently that you're excited about coming up and it could be anything professional or personal Hmm. i think um wow I'm excited about a couple of different things. I know that um, from a from a like really logistical, practical place, our friend um, Shakira Taborn uh, is in charge of um, Fresh Voices, leads Fresh Voices, and there's going to be a, like a revival of Dignity Babes, um, yeah. which started last year. So I'm excited about that in January. People can keep an eye out for that. Um, and on a personal note, I'm really excited about love. (laughs) Um, I met someone in the middle of the pandemic, um, and I like, and still in awe of the secure attachment that was formed and like how much trauma healing has been done in relationship. Um, and I'm excited about like possibility in times where everything feels impossible. Um, 
And I'm excited about how much I see the astrology reflecting my experience uh, in ways that I didn't expect. And I think that that it's really changed the way that I think about astrology and the way that I use astrology with clients. Um, and it has made me look at certain techniques that I maybe hadn't spent as much time with in the past, like zodiacal releasing and annual perfections, um, and eclipses. Like we're in the middle of eclipse season. So I'm excited about like resting on the next eclipse (laughs) because, um, magic on eclipses is kind of a no in traditional astrology. Um, yeah, I'm excited about rest. I'm excited about Adrian Marie Brown's new book, We Will Not Cancel Us, um, which is about cancel culture um, and how it's super harmful. Um, I'm excited about ritual. I think ritual as like a this this space as like something that occupies the space between um, like the connection between ritual and liminal and how ritual acts as like a transient space um, where shifts happen. Um, And so I'm excited to like not be on autopilot in ritual and to be really present and to see how that like enables me to change my consciousness around like chronic injury and um yeah I could go on I can't (laughs) the Sagittarius moon comes through (laughs) (laughs) thanks for that question yeah thank you so much Erin Thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying this podcast for a little while and you would like to support the show, I would love it if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you take a screenshot of your review before you click submit and email it to me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com, I'll send you a free gift about elevating your reality. It's a resource library with some different tools and thoughts that have come out of my own experience of rewiring my brain away from depression. And when you review this podcast, you actually help the podcast become more visible to people that are browsing and searching for content. So if you enjoy this show, it's a really good way to spread the word and to support. I'm leaving the links in the notes um, for Erin's workbook that she mentioned and how to find her as well as the upcoming Evolutionary Astrology Intensive and Meteorite, the Level 2 Evolutionary Astrology Training for alumni of the Intensive. Thank you for listening, and in the spirit of today's episode, go slow and be well. Be well.